0: I'm Dolly Alderton, and you're listening to Walks of Art. In this episode, we're going to be exploring the art of the River Thames. As any Londoner knows, this city is much more than the sum of its visible parts. My favourite writer, A.A. Gill, wrote London is a city of ghosts, not just of people, but eras. If New York is a wise guy and Berlin a wicked uncle, then London is an old lady who mutters and has the second sight. The Thames is the twisted spine of this old city, its big secret hidden in plain sight. Most Londoners don't do much with it, except refuse to cross it. But for artists, the Thames has been irresistible, a muse for painters from all over the world. Now I'm setting out for a wander along the river. On the way, we'll be meeting curators, historians and enthusiasts and asking how artists have changed the way us Londoners look at our overlooked river. I'm walking across the Albert Bridge, which is my favourite bridge in London. Surely every Londoner must have a favourite bridge. I think it's also the most romantic bridge in London, and it certainly was in my days when I worked on *Made in Chelsea*, and it was the backdrop for many a broken heart. I'm on my way to speak to artist Gerald Scarfe at his Cheney Walk home. Hello. Hello. Good
1: morning. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. Nice to
0: for the last 50 years, Gerald has lived and worked in a house overlooking the Thames. But back in 1858, this would have been far from a desirable address. The Thames was an open sewer. Here we are then. there? Yeah. Hello. He's been more successful than most in influencing how people perceive their politicians. And I want to ask how satirical cartoonists like him changed the way Londoners perceived their sickly river.
2: One day it's grey, the next hour it's yellow, it's blue. It's a beautiful thing to look out on. Before the embankment was built, the water almost came right up to the, the pavement outside. This would be in the 1850s, I suppose. The river then spread and meandered, and it had wharves and it had uh, docking places and so on.
0: And as we were walking down here to see you, there was no stench at all but I hear that there was a time where there was a particular stench. Can you tell me a bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, the river's pretty clean now, apparently. I mean, wonderfully so. Of course, over the centuries, the river had things thrown into it. It was the great sort of sewer running through London. Mm. And in 1858, there was a great heat wave, and it all kind of cooked. It was called the Great Stink, the smell that permeated London. Of course, the river had been in a bad condition. There are cartoons going back to, all oh, 30 years, 40 years before that, complaining about the river. But at that time, cartoonists like me began to make drawings showing what a terrible state the river was in and how something should be done about it. Parliament had just moved alongside the river. The Houses of Parliament had been recently built, and simply because they were affected by it. They decided they should do something about it. First of all, they started to treat the curtains in the House of Commons with chloride and lime, selfishly so, thinking of themselves, not, <laughs> not like the rest of London, as is usual. It
0: doesn't sound like politicians. It
2: doesn't at all, does it? Mm-hmm. But eventually, you know, they had to do something about it and they began to clean the river up. The sewers were built by Bazalgette. Things improved. But it was a terrible time. It's horrible to think of, I can't really imagine it, no. 40,000 people died of of cholera alone at that time, which is waterborne, as you know. There are other cartoons showing what was in the water at the time, these little grotesque figures people drew and so forth. And I remember a cartoon of the fair city of London, a woman dressed as the fair city of London with a shield. Father Thames is introducing his offspring And Father Thames is this rather disgusting-looking figure Mm. rising from the river itself. And he's putting forward his offspring, which are diphtheria, scrofula, and cholera. They're emaciated children. There are other cartoons. There's one called The Silent Highway, which is actually a picture of a skeletal death figure rowing along the Thames, saying, your money or your life. That's by John Leach floating alongside of these horrible decimated corpses of dogs and cats and other rubbish and so on
0: it's interesting that our perception of things that we see in a city changes depending on how they're depicted i think a lot of people think of images of the thames as being kind of romantic and obviously at this time it was a much harsher reality
2: i always understand my job as a cartoonist is to make a simple picture of the situation, try and encapsulate it. And if it works, it does transmit the feeling of what I'm trying to say and of the feeling at that time. And certainly the cartoonists in the 1850s did that, although a lot of artists had lived along the Thames. Turner lived a few doors up from me, Rossetti a little further up. And of course, they had quite romantic ideas of the Thames. It sets a mood, I suppose, a piece of art. Whether it actually affects anything or not, I always say about my cartoons, although I have practiced it for well over 50 years, I'm not sure I've ever changed anything. People do say that I've set a kind of mood, maybe, or an awareness of something. Pictures do set a mood in the public's mind, and you can affect mine. Today, of course, we have photography and we have moving images of everything, so all of that is fed in as well. But back in 1858, when we were talking about it, it was mainly cartoons and written pieces that brought about the change in the Thames.
0: We're off to the Strand now, in the footsteps of one of France's most famous artists and one of the people who changed the way we see the Thames forever. Like so many adopted Londoners, Monet came here under difficult circumstances. In 1870, he was broke, a refugee from the Franco-Prussian War in a cold, foggy city. But he fell in love with these fogs and mists, and most profoundly, with the Thames. In 1899, he returned, rich, famous, and with an ambitious series of paintings planned. I've just arrived at the very glamorous Savoy Hotel, where I normally only come once a year, where I grant myself one cocktail in the American bar over the course of two hours while a man tinkles the piano playing White Christmas. But today I'm finally going to get to go to a Savoy suite. I'm meeting Tate Britain assistant curator, Caroline Corbo parsons We're going as close as possible to the room from which Monet painted the Thames.
1: Housekeeping. Thank you. Wow, look at this. Yeah. This is ginormous. <laughs> look at that bath. Wow. Oh, nice. It's great that you can actually see the tents from your bath. Yeah, he could have painted from the bath. Yeah. <laughs> So we're not 100% sure that the room in which we are now is exactly the one where Monet painted. Having said that, standing by this amazing window, it looks as if the position is about right. Yeah, you've done your detective
0: work, (laughs) and this looks maybe where the view might have been. So when you look out on this view now, it's very built up, it's very hard to imagine exactly the London that Monet would have seen. But do you know
1: what specific things really kind of piqued his interest about this view? When he arrived in 1870, uh, one thing that really struck his imagination was the Houses of Parliament. When you see this picture, you just don't think twice, you know, it's the Houses of Parliament. It feels like they've always been there. Mm -hmm. But of course they were destroyed by a fire in 1834. Mm -hmm. The new palace of Westminster had just been completed in 1870. What was also new was the embankment, because before the Thames was just an open sewer he was painting something that was radically new. Nothing was old, you know, in his canvas. We have to remember that he first came to London as an exile. And to look at the Houses of Parliament must have felt very strange, because you had massive architecture, which really reflected the power of the British Empire there. And at the same time, Paris is just left in ruins. And he described that period of his life as a miserable time in London. When he turned 60, he decided to re-explore motifs from his past and one of them was the Houses of Parliament and the Thames. So for him, I think there was the idea of taking revenge on his past and I think he had this hope that he would be successful in Britain. How long was he doing this for and what kind of period was he here? He was probably here for about six months. So first time was in 1899, then 1900 and 1901. But he made sure that he came here at the same time of the year to have similar atmospheric effects, because he was only interested in the fog. He's quite monomaniacal about it. It seems like he was sort of chasing the elements a bit. He was, he was really trying to paint all the variations of atmospheric effects on the Thames, the effects of lights, and at a time when he felt really depressed about the whole enterprise, he said, it's impossible to paint London, the fogs are blue, they are green, they are purple, they change all the time, it's just an impossible task. He had two rooms actually, one in which he would sleep and the other in which he would paint, because at some point he had about 80 canvases on the go. What effect did that kind of level of intensity of observation have on him? Well, at some points he felt like he was literally losing his mind. He really felt that he had to paint on all these canvases at the same time. John Singer Sargent, the painter, saw what he was trying to do and was literally speechless. He wasn't quite sure what to tell, Monet. The Thames series that Monet painted, what effect do you think that had, the way that he captured it? I think it had a huge impact on uh, French art. The Hazards of Parliament really became a key motif for artists. If you look at some of Durin's paintings, but also some of uh, Maximilien Luce, who painted just after, they choose exactly the same scenes that Monet painted, but they challenge him on the same ground. So they're going to use the same view, but they use that to have their own artistic manifestos. You know, he was so famous, came 1904, when the Thames series was seen for the first time, that people felt that they had to respond to this. It had a, a huge impact on art history. When you read French guides of London at that time, they all marvel at the fog and they say, but... English people are completely oblivious to them because they've always lived in them, so they're used to uh, not being able to see two metres away. In the 1880s, Oscar Wilde said that people were not aware of fogs until the Impressionists invented them. What he meant was Whistler, he was referring to him. In the 1870s, he did uh, quite a few paintings called the Nocturnes, which represented the Thames but also the fog. And Monet also said that Victorian artists were cheating when painting London because they painted London brick by brick. And he said, this is not possible because there's this fog. Outsiders saw them as something unique, which made London, basically. Where, if not from the Impressionists, do we get those wonderful brown fogs that come creeping down our streets? To whom, if not to them and their master do we owe the lovely silver mists that brood over our river and turn to faint forms of fading grace, curved bridge and swaying barge. At present, people see fogs, not because there are fogs, but because poets and painters have taught them the mysterious loveliness of such effects.
0: On this walk, I've sometimes wondered what ordinary Londoners made of all this interest in their river over the years. What about the thousands of Watermen and Lightermen, the Dockers who worked the Thames? I'm heading back up to where we started, to Cheney Walk and the last fragment of the old Cremorne Pleasure Gardens to hear Tate curator Carol Jacoby tell the story of one of the most overlooked Thames painters, Waterman-turned-artist Walter Greaves. You'll hear her speaking alongside sometime Lightman and Woolwich ferry mate Dave Jessop. The heavens have opened and the rain is pouring down, but that's not stopping us from looking out the Thames. Can we talk about Walter Greaves, where he started his early life?
3: Walter Greaves' father, William Greaves, was a boat builder. Up until the 20th century, the sort of high street of London, if you like, was the Thames. Right. And William Greaves made a good living these small boats with which he ferried people around. They were like water taxis. Artists also used these boats to get themselves to the vantage points they wanted to paint from. And William Greaves was actually the boatman for JMW Turner. London was by far the biggest city in the world. It was the first super city and it was approaching 3 million occupants. People who visited from abroad were just overwhelmed by the incredible diversity of people here, the speed with which the city was changing and the life on the river was incredibly busy and fascinating. And I think this is one of the significant aspects of Walter Greaves himself, his incredible appreciation and love of that river life. An extraordinary painting that Grieve created was a picture of Hammersmith Bridge on Boat Race Day. People are sitting on the chains all the way up the bridge. It looks very precarious and overflowing from the bridge. It's one of the first great urban crowd scenes. You've got everything from soldiers to aristocracy to people selling things as adverts plastered on buses. The ambition, I think he was only about 18 when he painted this, I think it's extraordinary. For a young man who has got no official artistic training, that's the distinctive thing about Greaves as an artist, his incredible eye for the detail of the life on the Thames. A year or so afterwards, he met James McNeil Whistler. He was an American artist who had trained in Paris and then moved to London. And he moved to Lindsay Road, just a few houses down from where the Greaves family lived. Mm. The Greaves boys, Walter and his brother Henry, became his boatmen and also they became his pupils and whistler cultivated them and introduced them to modern ideas about art and modern techniques you see a change in Greaves' painting at this time but i think what you don't see is him ever losing that wonderful attention to detail and one of the things about Greaves' painting is that he really captures the kind of sludgy colour of the Thames. It's yes. not a sort of, um, you know, transparent, aquamarine piece of water.
0: Yes, he's not trying to romance us with it, is he? No, <laughs> no, that's true.
4: Hi, I'm Dave Jessup. I've worked on the river since I was 15. I was apprenticed to my father, who was a Thames lighterman in 1969. I was five when I first went out on the river, and I never wanted to do anything else. We go back 10 or 11 generations on the river. Watermen and lightermen. Watermen are the people that carry passengers. Lightermen were cargo. You know, you shifted barges on your own with no help, just the tide and the wind. Very skillful. And I think, to a certain extent, we took it all for granted. But I've got a brain full of knowledge there that no one wants. It's different, much, much, much different. What I'm looking at, you can't see. We used to work 24-hour shifts when I was a kid and you'd be in a tug and you'd start off down in your street and end up in West London with barges. And you could tell where you were when you were down the cabin by the smells. Oh, it must be a butler's. You could smell the spice and that sort of greenwich. You could smell the molasses. Sorry dogs was always the timber smell. There's cormorants sitting on there. On the market, pound. There was eight of them at Battersea the other night, so there's plenty of fish. At the moment, we've got flocks of starlings come down of an evening. If the wind's easterly in the winter, it's going to be cold because it goes Siberia, Dagnum, and then Woolwich. <laughs> Don't stop anywhere in between. It gets wet here, you can watch the rain coming down at you when it's... You know, you sit here thinking, I've got to get off this boat. Before the rain, it's and normally it's none. There's
3: a wonderful quote from him where he says, Chelsea was so beautiful that you couldn't but paint it. And that sort of underlines his love for it. But he says, To Mr. Whistler, a boat was always a tone. To me, it was just a boat. And I think he's sort of doing himself down a bit there because his understanding of the implications of what the boat's doing and the personalities of the boats really comes over in his paintings the where they don't in Whistler. Do we
0: have any idea of how their relationship progressed, professionally and personally? Yeah, the relationship lasted about 20 years,
3: but eventually Whistler moved to Tightscript Street, which was a sort of, bit more upmarket, and his social circle became upmarket and sophisticated, and it was around this time that he became less interested in the Greaves, and the friendship really, on his side, didn't continue. There's a wonderful painting which I think really underlines this change. It's a small painting of Walter Greaves himself and his sister Alice on the Chelsea embankment. And quite a poignant picture because it shows how London was changing so much. So the sort of muddy edges of the Thames where there would be mudlarks finding things in the mud and there'd be all the boatmen and so on were replaced by the Swish embankments which mm. we know today. Yes. And it was sort of, you know, tourists would come and see it. It was an amazing engineering phenomenon and it's a very different world mm-hmm. and I think really this is the, the moment in which he no longer really has a comfortable place in the world. The boatyard folded for many years right into the 20th century he could be seen around the riverside selling his work but he was poverty stricken. And in 1911 William Merchant who was the proprietor of the Goopel Gallery found a whole load of his work in a bookshop and thought wow this is fantastic made this lovely exhibition but Greaves' sort of triumph really only lasted two or three weeks because Whistler's biographers, the panels, wrote articles to the paper and so on where they essentially accused Greaves of plagiarising Whistler and having nothing in his art other than what Whistler had given him. Um, Which is
0: far from the truth. Yes, it
3: is far from the truth. But it did put an end to that rediscovery. Eleven years later, 1922, some artists, Augustus John, William Rothenstein, put another exhibition on and they also elected him to the Chelsea Arts Club and they found a place that he could retire to. So he did die, you know, with, in, some, in, peace. with some peace and yeah. dignity, yes. Yeah. But it was a sad story. That
0: is a sad story and one that we're so familiar with as well, with the meteoric rise yes. of a star who gets forgotten along the way. Yes. yes, that's very true.
4: Yeah. There's eight statues on Vauxhall Bridge the Batman. Some are by Drury, some by Pomeroy. And they represent fine arts, education, science, pottery, agriculture, astronomy. You've never seen them. Now you've got to go and have a look. And the only way you're going to see them is by getting a boat. One's holding a miniature support. They weigh three ton a piece. So that sums it up. London only exists because the Thames is here. The Romans came to Southwark, found that they could fold it, build a bridge. There was a hill the other side which they built the city on, and that's why London exists. Everyone should see the river, and everyone should see the river by night. It's quite romantic. I'm not going to invite you, but you know. Hello? Yeah, coming
3: in. I'm just looking out over here, and we've even got a barge over there. It hasn't got sails on it, but there is still a barge on the Thames over there.
4: (laughs) If you come to London and don't go on the river, it's like going to Paris and not looking at the Eiffel Tower. uh, It is London. It's London's history. London's heritage are all based on the river.
0: Artists have had a long and important relationship with how people, Londoners and those from much further away, perceive the Thames. But they've also had a vital role in recording the changes which reformed the river forever. Their work keeps us coming back to London's watery heart, showing us that London wouldn't exist without its river, and perhaps reminding us to hop on a boat once in a while to see this complex and sometimes overwhelming city from a new and rather revealing angle. And next time I walk over the Hungerford Bridge from the south bank, back home to Camden, I'll watch the city lights dance over the river's surface and think of its hidden historic depths. For more walks of art, visit the Tate podcast page on Tate's website.
4: 14, 32,